Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. A couple of things I want to speak to before we get started here. How many of you took time, be honest, to watch the Yimby Yimby documentary on YouTube? Raise your hand if you did. Oh, good. Several of you. Now, if you weren't one of those people who raised your hand, let me urge you to take the time to watch that documentary. It's 30 minutes long. We watched it as a family, and it was so well done. In your small group, if you haven't... If people in your small group haven't watched it, y'all take 30 minutes at the beginning of your small group just to watch that documentary. And the reason I want you to do so, one, you'll just be encouraged by what you see, but also next week when you see this guy stand up here, he won't be a stranger. You'll know his story. You'll feel more a part of what he's talking about if you'll take the opportunity to do that. There was a great quote that was mentioned in that documentary. It said that the mark of a great church is not its seating capacity, but its sending capacity. And I thought, whoa, that's good. That's really, really good. And that's what we want to be about. Do we want to make disciples right here in this church family? Absolutely. But is it sufficient just to stop there? Absolutely not. We want to make disciples to the uttermost parts of the earth. So please, if you haven't seen that, take the time to do so this week. You'll be glad you did. The second thing is, if you were a teacher, would you please raise your hand? Elementary, high school, college, how many teachers we got in the room? Some of you are not raising your hand. I know you're teachers. All right? (laughs) Good. I'm not going to put you on the spot. The reason I ask that is because, number one, we appreciate what you do. As a husband of a teacher, I know how much it requires of you as you invest in young men and women, boys and girls. And so we appreciate what you do. But I also want you to know about a ministry that supports you. It's called uh, Moms in Prayer. And these ladies get together weekly to pray for parents, to pray for students, to pray for teachers and administrators. And it's really a, a great ministry that just comes alongside those who are pouring out every day in the lives of our own children who are in school. Um, if you want to know more about it, there's a write-up in the back of the bulletin. would encourage you to uh, read that. And then after church, Kimberly Kennedy will be out on the, at the kiosk in the foyer. And if you just want to learn more about it and somehow get involved, please do so. It would be well worth your time. So with that in mind, let me pray for our teachers this morning. Lord, we are so, so grateful for the men and women who invest their times in the lives of young men and women, boys and girls. Lord, we need the influence of godly men and women who are pouring truth into the lives of our kids in a world that is filled with lies. So, Lord, thank you for that investment. Would you strengthen them and encourage them on those long days in those chaotic classrooms? Would you just give them the assurance that they are doing kingdom work by representing you in the schools? We are grateful for them, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, how many of you have been uh, manipulated into making a decision without even realizing you were being influenced? Anybody? I think most of us probably have. In our passage this morning, we see that happen with a ruler named Darius. Now, without even realizing what was happening, he was tricked into making a decision that he would have never made on his own. And as we've indicated, we've probably all fell prey to that same kind of manipulation. In fact, I would go so far as to say 
that most of us fell prey to it several times just this past week. How many of you have heard of the term surveillance capitalism? Anybody heard of that term? It can be called different things, but it's what happens, it describes what happens when we use the internet, when we go on social media, when we use our smart devices like uh, Alexa or any other number of forms of, of technology. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you want to buy a water filtration system for your home, right? So if you're like me, you go online. You do a search to just learn more about the different options, what they do, what they don't do. And as you're searching, you begin to realize as you're opening up new pages, what shows up on those pages? Ads for water filtration systems, right? That's surveillance capitalism. It's an algorithm built into technology that uses your personal information to influence your consumer decisions. But these systems are not just mining data to, to, uh, to give you things that you want to see. They're also manipulating data to give you things that you don't necessarily invite. They're, in a way, manipulating your choices without you even realizing it. See, many of the apps that you use during the day download at night while you're sleeping. And then when you get up and go for a run the next morning, you put on your Fitbit, and it records all that information, it does the same thing. It downloads that information. When you have a Gmail account, it will survey your emails for keywords and take that information. Everything you post, like, forward on social media is also recorded. Even that little safe driving device that your insurance company gives you is recording data. Your phone uses information about your location. Your smart TV monitors what shows you're watching. Every time you use your credit card, it's collecting information about your consumer choices. And much of that data is being used for marketing purposes. This is what drives the advertising that is intended to influence your decisions. And to be honest, it's not real well regulated. I mean, you can imagine trying to control all that. It's next to impossible, right? Which is probably not that big of a deal when it comes to advertising. But what if? What if technology was being filtered and managed so that your content went beyond just purchasing decisions? What if it was influencing your belief system as well by intentionally promoting both products and opinions that may not align with your personal interests? Intentionally manipulating information you receive or don't receive to influence your convictions. Would that be okay? Well, here's the deal. Whether it's okay or not, it's happening all the time. It's the reality of the world in which we live. And to be honest, unless you live as a hermit in the forest, it's completely unavoidable. So, the only way that we can counter these uninvited lies is through a diligent pursuit of the truth. Passivity will get you in trouble because you can't control what's coming at you. 
but you can determine how you view it in light of what you know to be true. You see, faithful devotion is the only antidote to worldly corruption. We're going to see that in our passage this morning. Faithful devotion is the only antidote to worldly corruption. In absence of faithful devotion, then you'll just be inoculated with the world system. Let's look at how that unfolds in our passage this morning. So turn, if you will, to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. And let's look at this passage together. Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find ground of accusation against Daniel in order or in regard to governmental affairs, but they couldn't find any ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors, have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Okay, now, as we witnessed last week, we know that the Medo-Persians have now come in and conquered Babylon. According to Daniel's earlier vision, what we're seeing happen here is the chest and arms of silver has overtaken the head of gold, which represented Babylon. And now Cyrus the Great appoints a man named Darius the Mede to rule over the city and region of Babylon. And you'll notice that his governmental form is very different than what we've seen in Daniel so far. Unlike the absolute monarchy of the Babylonian Empire, now we see kind of a, a governmental hierarchy in place. As we learned last week, the Babylonian king could do whatever he wanted. If he wanted you dead, you were dead. If he wanted you alive, you were alive. He could make that decision. But in this new government, even the king was governed by a rule of law. Their decisions were made within the allowable limits of this legal system, which is what allowed them to delegate power beyond that of just one person. And so we see in our passage that, that Darius appoints 120 satraps or, or government officials in that region. We also learn that over those 120 are 
three commissioners, Daniel being one of those three. It may be interesting for you to know that Daniel's probably in his 80s about this time. So he's no longer a young man anymore. These commissioners were set up, the passage tells us, to make sure that the king didn't suffer loss. Now, in all likelihood, this is financial loss, probably from the administration of taxes. So basically, they were making sure no one cheated the system. And apparently, Daniel excelled in his role. Verse 3 tells us that he had an extraordinary spirit. Let's think about that. What, what does that mean for Daniel to have an extraordinary spirit? I think what it tells us is that Daniel was a man of integrity in a society of corruption. Even in our world today, we know that it's not uncommon for people to cut corners in business, right? And then justify those actions to say, everyone does it. It's not that big of a deal, right? As if that's okay. But we know it happens all the time. Daniel, however, was unwilling to compromise. He was guided by a godly character and not by social norms. And apparently it caught the king's attention. His plan was to promote Daniel to an even higher position than he already had. But the other officials didn't want this to happen. And personally, just me, as I'm reading, I'm wondering, I wonder why. I wonder if it's because maybe they didn't want Daniel to take away the money that they were already putting in their pockets. He was messing up their system. So they tried to find some flaw in his character that they could exploit. They tried to discredit his devotion in order to prevent the promotion that the king intended but they kept coming up empty every time they tried to find a, a flaw in his character, some way in which he compromised, it wasn't there. And so they knew that the only way that they could make this happen is that they were going to have to set a trap. And they do this using both falsehood and flattery. Here's how that happens. First, they approach the king as a collective unit. So these officials got together, either some or all, I don't, we, we really don't know, but probably some representative group approaches the king, and they tell him that all the officials consulted and unanimously agreed that he needed to be king and worshiped as a god for a month. But, but we know that that's not true. It's false, because they didn't consult all the officials, because who was one of them? Daniel, and he knew nothing about their plan because it was a plan to trap him. So they had already entered into this with falsehood. The second thing they did was appeal to the king's pride. So they're now going to employ flattery. They proposed this law to worship King Darius as a god. It would have been viewed at that time as kind of an ultimate pledge of loyalty. They're going to put everything else aside and put all their focus and attention in honoring him. Now, as a new king, doesn't that sound appealing, right? They use falsehood and they use flattery. And then they hand him the document. When I read this, it tells me that they already had it written up. 
All you got to do is sign on the dotted line. He didn't have time to think or consider. He just liked the idea, so he put a signature on it. And then in that moment, that becomes a binding law for both him as the king and all his citizens. Look at how it continues in verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. I want to pause there because I want you to notice that Daniel was completely and fully aware of this new law, wasn't he? But it did not change his devotion. By all accounts, we don't read that there's any inner turmoil or or apprehension, but just faithful obedience. He didn't hide his devotion to protect his life. He didn't change his practice in order to be more socially acceptable. He simply did what he had always done, which is exactly what his enemies knew he would do. They had a plan to meet up as witnesses when they knew that Daniel would be praying. And I think it's possible that Daniel might have even been praying for them. We know he was praying for provision, for protection. He was likely praying for for strength in a situation where the outcome was uncertain, but he spent time praying as they knew he would. And let's see what happens. Look at verse 12. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true. According to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. Then they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you have signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. Then, as soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel and even Until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. But then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is law of the Medes and Persians, that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. Then the king gave orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no entertainment was brought before him, and he, his sleep fled from him. First of all, did you notice how they talked about Daniel in verse 13? I want you to recognize that it was intended to be disparaging. This is Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah. They're reminding the king, hey, this is a foreigner that you put into a place of power. So why should it surprise us that he's actually a traitor? 
they accused Daniel of disloyalty and ignoring the law that was written and disrespecting the king who wrote it. And I want you to know that instantly the king knew he had been trapped. In fact, if you could hear under his breath, I bet he said, oh, snap. <laughs> he knew he had been trapped. He was in no way fooled by their accusation. The king knew that Daniel was probably the most loyal official out of everyone. After all, the other officials just lied and manipulated the king to get their own way. They were accusing Daniel of being disloyal and disrespectful, and yet they're the ones who deceptively manipulated the king, and he knew it. After all, Daniel's faith was not a threat to the king in any way. In fact, it was an asset to his service. It was the reason that he was so uncompromising in a culture of corruption. So, we know that's true because of all that the king did to try to get Daniel out of this mess. He thought of every possible way to, to work around this law or to somehow find a, a, a pathway to make sure that Daniel was not thrown into the lion's den, but he couldn't come up with anything. He was bound by the rule of law, a rule that he had written. The king expressed his hope in the, that, that, that the God of Daniel would somehow deliver him, but the officials demanded the punishment, and at the end of the day, the punishment had to be enacted. And so Daniel was to be thrown into the den of lions. Verse 18 says that the king spent the night fasting. Now, I want you to know, I don't believe in any way that this was fasting and prayer. Okay, This was fasting because he had no appetite. And the reason he had no appetite is because he had just sentenced an innocent man to death. And he knew it. So he couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. It was completely restless for him. And I just wonder if Pilate may have had a similar restless night when he condemned Jesus to death. Because like Darius, he knew that he had just sentenced an innocent man to death by crucifixion on a cross. Like Darius, he tried to find every possible way out of this mess, but he was trapped. We see that in Matthew chapter 27. Listen to me as I begin reading in verse 23, where it says, and he uh, said, this is Pilate speaking, why? What evil has he, Jesus, done? But they kept shouting in the crowd all the more saying, crucify him, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. But here's the thing. Pilate wasn't innocent of his blood any more than you and I are. You see, it was his sin, as well as our sin, that put Jesus on the cross. See, we need to understand that Jesus didn't die because of a breakdown in the legal system. Jesus died because he willingly gave up his life. 
We know that from his own words in John chapter 10, verse 17. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me because, here it is, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one is taking it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the commandment that I received from my Father. See, the reason Jesus laid down his life was so that we could be set free. Set free from sin's curse so that, as the Bible tells us, we might walk in a newness of life. All made possible because the one who is innocent died for all who are guilty, including us. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Christ died for our sins. An innocent person died for those who are guilty. Christ did this to bring you to God when his body was put to death and his spirit was made alive. And please understand, Jesus gave his life so that you could have the gift of eternal life. That's what this is all about. Look at how it continues in our passage. So if you would, turn to verse 19. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has has your God whom you constantly serve been able to, to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths and they will have not harmed me inasmuch as I have found, been found innocent before him and also towards you, O king. I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. The king that gave orders and they brought the men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them and their children and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the people, the nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the region of Cyrus the Persian. So if you can kind of imagine what's happening, the very next morning, as soon as there was daylight, Darius runs out to the lion's den. But did you notice a couple of things? One is he wasn't a man of faith because he wasn't sure that God would actually be able to deliver him. He asked, was your God able to deliver you? But did you see where he asked from? From a distance. (laughs) He didn't want to get close enough to see the potential carnage inside that lion's den. So Daniel responds and and tells him that his God sent an angel to protect him. An angel. 
We know from earlier what happened in the fiery furnace. I just wonder if it's not the same angel who appeared with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, now appearing in the lion's den and protecting him by shutting the mouths of the lions. Remember the one who was like a son of the gods, human in form, but not divine in appearance? Maybe this was the same one who rescued Daniel, but whoever it was, the king was, to, was relieved to know that Daniel was safe and that he wasn't the one responsible for putting an innocent man to death. And so he then gave orders to bring those men who had tricked him, maliciously, maliciously manipulated him, and have them thrown into the lion's den. And not just them, but them and their entire family, their wives and their children. The scripture tells us that they were devoured before they ever hit the ground. It was a cruel punishment. But it was common during that time. Because Darius knew that they had deceived and manipulated him as king. So if anybody was a threat to the throne, it, were men, it was men like this. They were the ones who were disloyal. They were the ones who were ultimately guilty of everything that they were trying to pin on Daniel. And at that time, when a man was sentenced to death, his family was killed too. And the reason was they wanted to ensure that no one was alive to take revenge for those deaths. So they killed everyone. Darius then wrote a decree that recognized Daniel's God as living and enduring forever. He's recognizing that, that the, the God of Daniel is active and alive in the presence of his people. Not just distant in heaven, but present in earth. Not lifeless like an idol carved out of wood and stone, but living and enduring forever. He recognized he's a God who delivers and rescues, which we need to remember is equally true now as it was back then. But here's the question. Are you willing to entrust your life to God like Daniel did? Are you willing to obey even when the outcome is uncertain? Do you believe that God has the power to deliver? And do you trust in his wisdom if he chooses not to? Because here's the reality. We may not live in a time where people are thrown into the lion's den. But we most assuredly live in a time where we exist in a den of lies. You see, like the officials in our passage, people in this world want to manipulate the decisions and choices that you and your children will make. And they might even use flattery and falsehood, just like we see in our passage this morning. One modern example is what is known as expressive individualism. Ever heard that term? Also known as the psychological self. This is a common opinion that says that we should act outwardly based on how we feel inwardly. Expressive individualism. Which means our identity is ultimately self-determined. Which is pretty flattering, right? It puts all the power and authority and control in me. But it's deceptive 
because it ignores the rightful authority of our Creator. It ignores the intended purpose of His design. It's like going to the car lot and buying a brand new car, coming home and deciding, you know what, I know it's a gasoline engine, but I prefer water. I'm going to put water in. Now, you can choose to do that, but you're going to absolutely destroy that engine because you're making it do something outside of its original design. And the same thing is true for us. It does not work, and it is ultimately destructive when we live outside the boundaries of God's design. But this is a mindset that permeates our culture, and it ultimately influences our decisions. And I believe the very same philosophy is infiltrating the church. It's the reason that we see in our day and time so many Christians who are now renouncing their faith, right? People like Joshua Harris. He wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He was a, a phenomenon at one time and has since decided he doesn't believe that anymore. We need to understand that people are doing this by deconstructing their belief system without the Bible or biblical community. They take those traditional beliefs that maybe some of them grew up with having been raised in the church and they begin to question them. It's like if you can imagine a Lego castle and then taking one piece at a time and deciding, hmm, do I like this piece? And either decide to keep it or choose another one and replace that one instead. So if you don't like what's there, you just do something different. But here's the key. That decision is ultimately self-determined. Instead of relying on the authority of God's word, I now decide based on what's reasonable to me. I'm the authority. Which is always influenced, make no mistake, by what is happening around you. You are not the ultimate authority because your decisions are ultimately influenced by what is happening around you. So don't fool yourself. So now, people replace what is biblical truth with socially acceptable norms. They reconstruct their faith to look very different than what you see being demonstrated in Scripture. We see that happening in what today is known as the progressive Christianity movement. And let me just make it clear, there's nothing Christian about it. Very often, this movement is a pathway to renouncing your faith altogether. It's expressive individualism where I get to determine what's right for me. It's a mindset that permeates our culture and influences our decisions. But I also want to say this, that deconstruction, that, that that's not always evil. It can actually be healthy. For example, let's say you grew up in a church where everyone was perfect. I mean, no one had any problems, right? Now, we know that's not true, but everyone pretended like it was. And if you were a person who walked in that church with a struggle, it was not a safe place. It would be good and right for someone to have grown up in that experience and look at that and compare it to the Scripture and go, no, that's not right. 
In fact, 1 John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. The Bible is filled with broken people who are consistently confessing their weaknesses. So we should take that Lego piece and replace it with the truth of Scripture. But did you notice the difference between healthy and damaging deconstruction? Because this is really important. The difference between healthy and damaging deconstruction is ultimately whatever you choose to be your reference of authority. It's good to make your faith your own by looking at the Bible for answers within the context of biblical community. It's bad when that truth is ultimately self-determined. Because here's what's happening. It's taking us right back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve just wanted to be like God. Determining for themselves what is right and wrong. And we know how that ended. So let me close with a word to parents. Okay, I want to encourage you to be patient and don't be alarmed if you see your kids deconstructing their faith. You see, we want them to know that the church is a safe place to have doubts and to ask hard questions because here's the deal. If this is not a safe place for them to come and and work through those struggles, then they'll go outside of us into the world, and I promise they're going to get a very different answer there. So be patient. Because we live in a world that is a den of lies. And the only way to counter those lies is a diligent pursuit of God's truth. That's our authority. Faithful devotion is the only antidote to worldly corruption. It was true for Daniel, and it's true for you and I. It's okay. Now hear me on this. It's okay to doubt and have questions, but don't come untethered to the truth of God's word and the safety of biblical community. Daniel's faith was built on God's promise. Our faith is built on the fulfillment of God's promise in God's Son. He is the way. He is the truth. He's the life. The one who rescues and redeems every single day. Our faith is secure when we anchor our hope in Him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the timeless truth of your word. We learned when we went through Ecclesiastes, Solomon was clear, inspired by your, your spirit, that there is nothing new under the sun. We may think that things that we are going through today are so unique to our times, but in the root of it, it's the same as it's always been. An enemy at work to deceive the hearts and minds of people, to distract them from the loving and gracious Savior who came to give them life. So, Lord, may we counter those lives, those lies, with a diligent pursuit of the truth. May we create a safe environment within the context of biblical community to have doubts, to ask hard questions, but to always rely on you and the truth of your word as our ultimate authority, believing with great conviction 
that life works best, that we are designed to flourish within the boundaries of your design. That's where we find the goodness that our hearts are longing for. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would, stand. Let's sing together. Hey, here's some good news. It really is that simple. There are plenty of unanswerable questions that you and I will face in our lifetime. But we can always turn back to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The simplicity of that message of hope. And it's enough. Only Jesus. Let me close with one thing before Jeff comes up that you said, Tanner, that I think is really important. We are so, so blessed by the wide age demographic in our church. And here's why that's important. Because as young people, and I'm going to put myself in that category because I'm still there in a sense, and I know I was there when I was younger, we are inclined towards shiny objects, right? We like things that are new and different. And we need the older, or what did you say, seasoned generation to remind us of where we need to anchor our soul. If you were to look and read throughout Scripture, I'm pretty sure that one of the most common words that you will see repeated over and over again is remember. Remember. So thank you for the older generation in our church that helps us remember. And may we, in biblical community together, stand strong in the foundations of our faith. Jesus. Amen.